Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to not only the last lecture of the summer session, but to our annual Malkin Lecture. The Soul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography is Rare Book School's most prestigious annual lecture. It's named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. Covering book collecting and research librarianship as well as used and rare bookselling, the journal was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, librarians, and savvy academics. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual Rare Book School lecture in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin, recognizing his contributions to the antiquarian book trade. Our very own Michael Winship, in our midst this week, gave the first Saul L. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in 1985. He was six years old. <laughs> After Saul Malkin died in 1986, Marianne continued to support Rare Book School both at Columbia and then here at UVA after the school moved. In the late 1990s, Marianne Malkin allowed Rare Book School founding director Terry Bellinger to change the name of the lecture to the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. Until her death in 2005, she came down from New York City to attend most of the Malkin Lectures, and she left the school a significant portion of her estate. Take note and do likewise. <laughs> she was truly a friend of RBS, and it's a great privilege to honor her memory in an ongoing way. Malkin lectures over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Bill Barlow, Bob Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Schmidt, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Kies Lieb, Paul Needham, Bill Reese, Barry Rosenthal, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. Joining their ranks as this year's Malkin Lecture is a woman who has had a truly distinguished career both as an artist and as an academic. Johanna Drucker is Professor of Information Studies and the Bernard and Martin Breslauer Professor of Bibliography in the Department of Information Studies at UCLA. She has previously taught at Columbia, Yale, SUNY Purchase, and the University of Virginia, where in 1999 she became Robertson Professor of Media Studies. Johanna is internationally known for her work in the history of graphic design, typography, experimental poetry, fine art, and digital humanities. In addition, she has a considerable reputation as a book artist. Her limited edition works are in special collection libraries and museums worldwide. 
Her 1996 work, The Word Made Flesh, which is not what you think it is, is what first drew me to her as a book artist. Among her best-known scholarly productions are The Visible Word, Experimental Typography and Modern Art, 1909-23, to The Century of Artists' Books, 1995, already something of a classic, The Alphabetic Labyrinth, The Letters in History and Imagination, also 1995, Graphic Design History, A Critical Guide, now in a second edition, Spec Lab, Digital Aesthetics and Speculative Computing, and Graphesis, Visual Forms of Knowledge Production, 2014. Those who have had the pleasure of hearing her lecture will long remember that experience. I myself remember her 2012 talk at RBMS in San Diego with great delight. In print and in person, Johanna Drucker is a force to be reckoned with. We are privileged to have her with us today. Thanks very much. Thanks all for coming. And you'd think with an introduction like that, I could take the space out between the S and the apostrophe, wouldn't you? <laughs> I apologize. I really, truly do to everyone in this room. <laughs> so, it, I couldn't believe it when the slide went up. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk to you about Edmund Fry's Pantographia. And this is a book that was uh, printed, uh, appeared in 1799. And Pantographia is a fascinating work for many, many reasons. And I'm giving you both a facsimile version of the title page and also the title page um, in a more blown-up manner so that we can take a look at it and think about what's on that title page. Um, I've been working with this book for a long time. I first found it when I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the days when OpenStax allowed you to discover things that were not taken out of the library and hadn't been for a very long time. I'm a great advocate of OpenStax and of the process of discovery that they afford. Um, and uh, this book, uh, Pantographia, um, is fascinating within the history of alphabet historiography and it is part of a larger project that I'll be working on, I hope, it well into my dotage. Um, that's like next year, but um, anyway, well into my dotage. Uh, but the, um, but the, the multi-dimensions of this book make it very interesting to study first as a historical artifact um, in all kinds of ways. Um, if we take a look at the title page here, I'm going to read the title page. Pantographia, first it's, an, it's a neologism that Fry invents, and it's a claim, of course, that this is going to be a full compendium of every form of writing containing accurate copies of all the known alphabets in the world, together with an English explanation of the peculiar force or power of each letter, to which are added specimens of all well-authenticated oral languages, forming a comprehensive digest of phonology by Edmund Fry, letter founder, Type Street. Now, Fry is a type founder, and he is also a serious scholar. This book took him, you know, quite a long time um, to produce. I've heard, I've read uh, accounts that say six years. I've heard accounts that say 16 years. Um, it is, in fact, a compendium. Um, and when we get inside it, uh, I'll show you a couple of the samples. 
Um, one of the things that's fascinating about the book is its extent and its breadth that in fact Fry is trying to list every single one of the known alphabets in the world. In a moment we'll touch on the question of what he understands an alphabet to be and how this book actually sits within a history in which the conception of what the alphabet is is in constant flux and formation. In order to produce the book, um, uh, Fry had to uh, redraw all of the characters that he was going to print and then have them rendered into plates. Um, now again, I've, heard very, I've read varying um, uh, points of information about the production of this particular work and those of you who have insight about it can share that with us in the question and answer period. But what the author himself says is that he has redrawn each and every one of these characters and then I would assume that they were, they were rendered um, into, a, into a metal plate and printed. Um, and uh, so that means that he has to see them, he has to copy them. Now, in order to look at all of the known alphabets in the world, um, Fry is positioning himself as somebody at the center of a particular historical moment and empire. We could look at this book historically. We could say, oh, this gives us a snapshot of where England is positioning itself in 1799. Right? It's at the height of its empire, it's got global expansion, it needs these uh, scripts for various parts of um, its uh, colonial um, you know, uh, uh, dealings and trade. It has access to, you know, somebody, the, the English type founders have access to these materials. It's also going to be a snapshot of the kinds of scripts and fonts that are going to be made for missionary purposes. Right? Why are these fonts known? What are they doing? Um, how are they being produced? Um, so again, we could look at this from a historical point of view just to see what it tells us about British culture in 1799. We could also look at it from a linguistic point of view. What are the typologies of language? How are they characterized? What does Fry know about those languages? How is the linguistic profile of knowledge or the profile of linguistic knowledge documented by this particular work? So there are ways in which we could look at it you know, across uh, its, its different um, points of intersection with varying disciplines. We could also just look at it from a typographic point of view. It's a fascinating work. Take a look at this Armenian number five and Armenian number six. I mean, forget what's on the, on the right-hand side of the screen for a moment. Just look at the left-hand side of the screen. Okay, so again, what, what is the typographic inventory from which Fry is drawing? How does he know these particular fonts? Where, where are they coming from? How accurate is his knowledge? What is his understanding of what constitutes Armenian, Greek, Latin? Um, and then we're going to get into a series of alphabets called the Chaldeans and ask what is meant by a Chaldean in this particular period. So again, it's a fascinating compendium. It's rich and it's dense. But what's interesting to me about the work is the extent to which Fry is responsible to his bibliographical sources. Insofar as a humanist scholar can have any kind of pretension to enlightenment thinking in terms of uh, a kind of empiricist method, it is to report the sources from which one draws one's scholarship so that others may check them, right? You're not going to do repeatable results, but you're going to say, here's where I got it from. If you look on the right-hand side, you will see that Armenian number five is taken from the Encyclopédie Française, plate 12 and 13. 
you look at num Armenian number six, and you will see that it is taken from Claude Duré, right? The Trésor um, de, 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 de l'Écriture de cet univers, right? So he's, he's quoting Duré. You go to page 725 of Claude Duré's 1619 Trésor, and it is there. All right, so Fry is a reliable scholar. This impressed, this is very impressive, right? And also because, again, it's setting a bibliographical standard for the kind of work that he's doing. So there are a number of things about the book just at, you know, out of the gate that are very uh, fascinating to me. But my interest in the book is a little bit more specialized, as uh, you will see. And that specialization begins when we start to look at the list of authorities that is, the bibliographical sources that Fry offers to his reader, again, as a way to understand what the source material is on which he is drawing. Again, thank you, Mr. Fry. Um, this habit of actually listing all authorities rather than burying them in footnotes or referring to things in a kind of offhand manner um, is an, a demonstration that Fry is squarely within what we will call a bibliographical tradition. He is citing the sources and he is citing them as particular editions and particular works. All right, this is a significant point in terms of the way we will understand Fry's own position within the history of alphabet historiography. And that's going to be part of the larger discussion I'm going to introduce in a couple of minutes because this book is not just interesting in itself, it's interesting because it sits in 1799 in a particular moment in the history of understanding of models of history, models of the history of writing, and the conception of the alphabet, and modes of knowledge production and transmission. And so Fry is an exemplary um, you know, scholar of the bibliographical method at a moment when bibliographical method has, you know, a, a hundred years or so of established um, uh, protocols, but is still engaged in forms of knowledge transmission that are not, strictly speaking, bibliographical. It's also bibliographical at a moment when other forms of knowledge production have not yet come into practice and not yet come into view that will be crucial to the understanding of the history of the alphabet and historiography. So again, it sits in a really interesting place. So 1799. If you were to take a look very carefully through this list of authorities as they're present in the work, um, you'll notice a couple of interesting things. One is that Fry's bibliography is almost entirely 17th and 18th century. He's writing in 1799. Now, it's not because there are not earlier sources. There are earlier sources. But this just happens to be the profile, that he, the, the profile of the sources that he's using. So he actually isn't going back and quoting from uh, 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 Palatino's uh, uh, writing manual, which he could be because some of these um, uh, scripts are going to show up there. Right? He's not quoting from uh, other works that are present across the 15th century. Um, and so again, thinking about what's present and what's absent in Fry's uh, list of authorities is also interesting. Another thing, if you start to go through and look at what's here, is that the books, that the sources start to divide. Um, there's a number of, of sort of big picture, um, you know, scholarly sources like the, oops, sorry, um, and, uh, the uh, Encyclopédie Française, right? But there's also a lot of, um, you know, uh, other things mixed in. 
we're going to get the unheard of curiosities concerning the talismanical sculpture of the Persians by James Gaffarel, again a very important book within the history of uh, celestial alphabets. Um, we're going to get other things like A Voyage Round the World by um, J.F.G. de la Perouse, right? Why the voyage round the world? Well, because for some of these quote-unquote exotic alphabets, you're going to rely on the reports of voyagers and travelers. So again, if you go through these authorities very, very carefully, then you start to see a sense of, of Fry's own intellectual formation. Um, and uh, another thing that you're going to see um, in here are the, um, again, some classics here, The Origin and Progress of Printing by Philip Lucombe. You're going to see The Origin and Progress of Letters by William Massey. You're going to see The Origin and Progress of Writing um, as well, Hieroglyphic as Elementary by Thomas Astle. For anyone interested in the his history of the alphabet and historiography of the alphabet, these are classic texts. These are touchstone texts. And again, because they themselves are compendium makers. They are trying to gather together what is known and bring it forward in a responsible manner. So there are the books that are the books about the history of, of writing and the history of the alphabet. But there's also, and here's our um, uh, wonderful Claude Duret, the Trésor de l'Histoire, des Langues de cet univers. That's what the um, Armenian number uh, six was taken from. All right, you also have the masterful work of John Wilkins, the essay toward a real character in philosophical languages, um, and uh, Fournier Lejeune. Okay, so it's a mix of things that come out of the typographic world, the philosophical world, the history of writing world, um, the kind of ex explore, exploration of colonialism world. And the other thing that's going to be present here are works that are coming out of the world of ant of ant um, uh, the, what we call the um, antiquarians, right? That uh, antiquarian knowledge is, again, characteristic of the 17th and 18th century. So we'll talk about antiquarians and how they know what they know um, in a moment or two. I want to point out uh, a couple of uh, anomalies on this page or interesting things. Now, needless to say, I tracked all of these sources. We have a great number of them, luckily, at the Clark Library um, in actual volumes. Uh, quite a few of them are actually digitized online. But there are some things that you actually can't get hold of and that I looked for for many years. This particular document, the Preuve Générale des Caractères, um, and uh, with a avec un traité des langues étrangères de leur alphabet et de chiffre. Okay, à la plume par le claver. All right, this is a remarkable and amazing artifact. And if you read this here, this curious, unique is in the author's possession. Fry owned this item. Now, I spent a many a year tracking this creature down, and I finally found out that I finally figured that when Fry died, something must have happened to it. And in a copy of the Gentleman's Magazine, I saw a passage about it being put up for sale and being considered a national treasure. So I figured it had to be in the British Library, and indeed it is. I finally laid eyes on it and went through it. It is a hand-drawn facsimile, facsimile of several printed books, right, including uh, Colette and others, printed books of um, uh, compendia of scripts that are not reproduced elsewhere. So why Le Clever made it and how he made it, it's, it's interweaved with all kinds of other things. It's a fascinating manuscript. Again, completely like lost. So that's a fascinating item. And 
two of the other fascinating items. All right, guys, go ahead and find it. Dr. Martin's tables, Dr. Morton's tables. You know how many Dr. Martins and Dr. Bernard, uh, Dr. Bernards there are? So again, I have tracked these things down and have copies of them. They are giant, amazing uh, prints and proofs that are compendia as well. Um, and I believe, Doctor, I'll, I'll get the details wrong, so I'm not going to give them to you. But um, uh, one of them is the keeper of the of the treasures at the you know uh, library someplace, and like collects things from you know everywhere, sort of in the James Bond adventure Hepburn mode of like, oh, since I'm at the Vatican, I'll just copy everything that I can see and put it together on a single um, uh, print, and that'll be useful, as indeed it is. Anyway, um, so the, uh, the the list of authorities is is a completely interesting and useful document, again, as a kind of inventory of what Fry is using to put together his thinking. But more important for me is that I'm not interested at this point in time in the history of the alphabet. I'm not a Western Semitic epigrapher, and I'm not somebody who is going to look at the archaeological evidence uh, at the level that somebody like Benjamin Sass is going to do and chart and map every single known glyph of every single instance of archaeological evidence that points towards the uh, development of the alphabet as a script someplace in the uh, in ancient Palestine between 1800 and 1600 BCE. I don't have the skills to do that, um, and, uh, and there's other people more equipped to do it. Nor am I interested in synthesizing the information about the history of the alphabet. I'm interested in the historiography of the, of the alphabet. I'm interested in how knowledge about the alphabet is produced at different points through different models of history and the alphabet. What does Fry tell us about the way history is understood? What are the models of history and of its development and progress and progression that he articulates in 1799? It's a very different kind of project. And in so doing, how can we begin to use Fry to refract, and I'm going to use that term again in my conclusion, to use Fry to refract our understanding of how histories are told, right? And the histories of the alphabet are not all histories of one object with the story told differently. They are different stories that construct a different object. It's a different history, and it's a different artifact, and what writing is and what the alphabet is is different in each instance. So this is the point I'm going to try to make by using Fry as my example. Okay. Uh, I said to you that Fry is extremely conscientious in the tracking of his own uh, bibliographical research back to um, its originals, and we can rely on Fry to track back the genealogy of each instance that he cites. Among the many alphabets in Fry's compendium are mostly alphabets that are what we would call legitimate scripts. In other words, Armenian is a script in use. It is a script that belongs to a particular uh, uh, cultural group. It is used for various languages. You could find it in print. You would find it in books. You would find it in inscriptions. In other words, it is a script in use. It is an actual script of an actual language or of a, a, multiple languages and dialects. However, one of the fascinating sets of scripts within Fry are what he calls Chaldeans. 
Now, the term Chaldea is the old name for uh, Babylon, right? And it's a biblical term. But the Chaldeans are, a, are a, a, it, the, the term Chaldean is a rubric under which a whole variety of celestial alphabets, angelic alphabets, and mythic alphabets are categorized in Fry's particular um, uh, uh, study. So here is Chaldean number one. And as you'll see, it's called celestial. It's said to have been composed by the ancient astrologers from the figures of certain stars and represented in two hemispheres. All right, and it comes from the work of Gaffarel. So let's go see. Let's go back and take a look at Jacques Gaffarel in 1637. Lo and behold, there we have Jacques Gaffarel's celestial alphabet. No problem at all. Oh, except there is just kind of one little problem. This is 1637. Gee, that's a nice wood block. Oh, and isn't it nice that Guillaume Postel happened to have done it for me in 1538 so that I could just pick it up and put it in my own book a century later. Okay, um, now what's interesting again is that Fry doesn't mention Postel. He doesn't actually cite Postel. He only cites um, Gaffarel. So again, it's interesting to see what's that break about, you know, Fry, did, did Fry not know this? Probably not. Did he not have access to a copy of Postel? But the point is that um, insofar as we can track Fry, Fry's research, he does take us back to where he got his information. So again, this is extremely useful. Claude Duret, 1613, also is going to have a copy of this particular script, the Celestial Alphabet. Now what's interesting about these Celestial Alphabets is I would suggest to you the only way that they can be copied and transmitted is if you can see a specimen of them, right? Whereas Armenian, you can find all over Armenia. Okay, there's lots and lots of examples of it. Um, celestial alphabets are a little harder to find. Um, angelic alphabets are very hard to find. And um, again, they're going to migrate as specimens. Um, they're not going to be used, right? As far as I know, but I'm happy to be contradicted, I do not know of any text written in the celestial alphabet. Stephen, this is not your moment to come up with an example. Okay, so um, we know many examples, but they're all out of sight. Okay, um, again, these alphabets circulate. We see them come up in Agrippa um, sometime later in the 1533, possibly in the 1560s, and again, copied over and over again. So uh, the point here really is to simply demonstrate the um, validity of Fry's research and his methods, and also to um, raise some of these questions about how is knowledge about script transmitted, and how are those different technologies of knowledge production significant in terms of the conception of what constitutes both the alphabet and a concept of history, because history is going to come in here in full force in a couple of minutes. All right, let's take a momentary detour and let's talk about this thing called the alphabet. Ask a literate person, any literate person, average literate person, not the people in this room, but the average literate person, because you guys have cheated and studied scripts and writing for you know, most of your adult lives, um, you know, ask them a question about the alphabet. And what will they say to you? They'll say, oh, which alphabet? You mean our alphabet? The Greek alphabet? Wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay. Um, there is, in fact, only one alphabet. 
and that has a single root source, and that is in the proto-Canaanite um, sort of formula, formation that happens around 1800 BCE in a period of the old Levant. We'll look at that in a moment. Um, it forms under influence from uh, cuneiform syllabary and cuneiform sign systems uh, to the north and east, and Egyptian hieroglyphics in their various forms to the south and the west, and other kinds of uh, uh, sort of modifications of those script forms, and it forms and then becomes uh, uh, solidified by the Phoenicians by about someplace between 1200 and 1000 BCE, and then it starts to be diffused into um, Proto-Arabic, Old Hebrew, um, and if you look at this, you'll start to see this particular uh, family tree as things spread, Ethiopic, Modern Arabic, Persian, and um, Aramaic, and this splits into all of the scripts, known alphabets, of the world. This is a contemporary image of scripts of the world, alphabets of the world, you will notice on here that every single one of these terms says alphabet, 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 except for the Chinese script and the Japanese script. In fact, the Korean script is also uh, sui generis and not related to other alphabets. Um, but the alphabets of the world, including the Southeast Asian scripts, and the alphabets in, uh, now there are a few exceptions, there's a few, um, you know, sort of inventions, Cherokee, Vi, and so forth, but the alphabets of the world are all descended from a single common source. They look different because they get adopted and adapted just the way that dialects do, just the way that spices do as they move across cuisines. But the root source and the, and the demonstration of this is that the names of the letters, the powers of the letters, and the sequence of the letters essentially remains the same. So there is a single alphabet source. Now, again, they vary, adopt, change. Um, and, there is a, a, and, and it wasn't invented by the Greeks. And um, our alphabet is, in fact, the Semitic alphabet. So all of that um, uh, is something that is uh, useful to clear up right at the beginning. It's in the Fertile Crescent that the alphabet is uh, uh, created. And again, it's a, the, the question of where the alphabet comes from, how it comes into being, is again part of this historiography. And so I'm going to move quickly through a number of sort of paradigms uh, of alphabet historiography in order to make this point. But the, uh, the, the area in which the alphabet develops is here, what we would call Old Canaan, the Levant, uh, you know, Palestine, modern-day Israel. So that's the region in which it develops, and it develops in this you know, area of tremendous trade and cultural exchange um, in the Fertile Crescent um, in the ancient world. Okay, if you take a look at these various um, uh, ancient alphabets, um, and you start to look at the, the dates of these from the Sinai, Ugarit, Biblos, Hieratic, Moab, Aramaic, Petra, so on and so forth, um, down through here. You can watch these various signs um, being transferred and solidified. Here is our alpha taking shape, right? Here's our, you know, the, the, the beta taking shape, the gimel taking shape, and so forth. So um, again, these processes of diffusion, transformation, and change. Um, all right, 
The alphabet does spread to Greece, um, and it is uh, spread by land as well as by sea, by the Phoenicians. Again, it's a very complex um, uh, process. It would be a mistake to think of the alphabet as a set of little printing types that simply arrives in a box, and then the Greeks take it out and just start to use it. No, it doesn't work that way. Um, and again, they make their own adaptations. They say, well, this looks good, but it doesn't work exactly for what we need. Let's add a few things here and a few things there. We don't really like red pepper, but we're really fond of basil. So let's make a new alphabet soup and uh, make it work for our tongue. And uh, so again, the analogy really does make sense. So the spread of the alphabet into um, Greece as well as into Iberia and into Asia Minor and along the African and North Africa, all of these um, uh, sort of spreads um, have their different moments, different waves, things take, things take root, develop separately, and then come into common um, exchange and, and a process of formation. So it's a very complex and long uh, process. Um, the understanding of how the alphabet spread into Greece is something that was uh, being studied extensively in the 19th century. This Alfred Kirchhoff um, map, uh, which is a little hard to read because the positive has, positives and negatives um, are not quite what you might ask for in terms of uh, graphical clarity. But this particular Kirchhoff map that shows some of the different branches of the alphabet as it arrives, spreads, and uh, uh, specializes uh, for different areas in, of, of the Greek language and culture, um, caused the terms the green, the green Greek alphabet and the red Greek alphabet to be codified in alphabet studies because the Kirchhoff map was such a point of reference for so long. But let's um, go back to this question of knowledge production and knowledge transmission so that we can situate Fry within this larger picture. And again, this is an, an, an enormous project and, and undertaking. I'm going to compress into just a few touchstone points um, the issue so that you can see what the thrust of the argument actually is. And that is that um, the uh, transmission of knowledge about the alphabet takes a number of different forms. First, there are the artifacts themselves. But there's no writing about the artifacts themselves until well into the period of the antiquarians. Instead, in the Greek period, um, and this is the uh, Nestor's Cup from 8th century BCE, um, in the Greek period, we have the writings of Herodotus. Herodotus gives a very wonderful account about the arrival of the alphabet. The Greeks knew perfectly well that they had not invented the alphabet. The alphabet came from the east, Cadmus is, you know, he who comes from the east. Um, they knew it came from the Phoenicians. Cadmus gives the Phoenician alphabet to the Greeks. It's on a Greek medal. Herodotus writes about the fact that these little word signs, these little scribble signs, looked like they would be useful and interesting, but they didn't quite fit the Greek, Greek language. What's interesting about this is not just the history, but the fact that Herodotus's account itself comes forward well into the 20th century. Everybody writing about the history of the alphabet will quote Herodotus and give this citation. It is not a bibliographical citation, it's a textual transmission. There's no way to cite the original source. It can only be passed on as a citation. Sure, when you get into the age of editions, you can cite it bibliographically. 
But textual transmission is the first mode of self-conscious transmission about knowledge. It's the first formulation of this history. Is it reliable? Yes. Is it fluid? Yes. Does it change from version of citation to version of citation? Absolutely. But Herodotus is the touchstone point. My point here is that knowledge transmission takes many forms. Textual transmission has one kind of form. There is nothing in Herodotus and in this textual transmission mode that could ever allow you to identify the characters and figures of the Greek alphabet because the text doesn't cite them. It doesn't have a graphical record of the characters, right? It's a textual transmission. He could be talking about Hebrew letters. He could be talking about, you know, the celestial alphabet. What he says, however, because we know it's Greek, is that the, the Greeks got, their, um, uh, got the alphabet from the Phoenicians. Now, the, the Greek, there are many other Greek sources and classical sources, they hold up until the fourth century, uh, first century. In the first century, when we get Josephus, who is going to write about the antiquity of the Jews, we start to have another biblical sense of the origin of the alphabet, and the biblical form of knowledge begins to take hold. Now, Josephus doesn't have any problem with Herodotus. He's not trying to make a, he doesn't have to, you know, sort of clear the space. But Josephus is the person who puts into this textual stream of alphabet historiography the notion that the alphabet is not, you know, it was invented far earlier. That in fact, what Josephus says is that there is a story in the Bible that Adam, who's lying here on his deathbed, in case you didn't recognize him, okay, without Eve and the apple at his side, okay, so here's Adam on his deathbed, and there is his son Seth, In this is a, a graphic novel, because there's Seth listening to Adam, and then Seth following the instructions of Adam, both in the same frame, that um, Adam says to Seth, you must go out and find two pillars on which you will inscribe all of the knowledge that we have. And therefore, when the flood comes, Adam foreseeing the flood, right, several generations later, when the flood comes and covers up the earth, it will ultimately recede, and that which we have known will be apparent to future generations because there it will be written. Now, the amount of 17th and 18th century literature devoted to the question of what this means is enormous. Does this mean that Adam knew how to write? If he did, how did he learn how to write? If Adam knew how to write, how is it that when Moses gets the Decalogue on Mount Sinai that he brings down the laws and that that is supposed to be the moment at which God has given writing to Moses? So huge debates about this. But anyway, Josephus then becomes the sort of interpreter of this biblical tradition and the formulator of what becomes a second stream of knowledge production and transmission. The authority of the biblical record is, I will uh, suggest to you, at least as powerful as the authority of Herodotus, um, especially um, in Western Europe in the 17th and 18th, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Actually, up until Charles Lyell, um, but we'll get to that in a moment. All right, a third form of knowledge production and transmission that is crucial um, to Fry and to alphabet historiography is that of the visual, the graphic. In medieval manuscripts, you find wonderful compendia, 
in particular the ones attributed to Robinus Morris. Morris put together various script compendia. He was interested in the history and genealogy of texts. It so happens that among the texts that Robinus Morris in this uh, uh, manuscript, second half of the 12th century, puts into his uh, compendia is one attributed to Ethicus Ister, who is a mythical figure. Right, this 12th century, so there are these various mythical figures whose contribution to the historiography of the alphabet also comes to be encoded in a particular specific set of graphical glyphs that then get copied and transmitted and copied and transmitted, and some of them end up in Edmund Fry. This is what's so amazing, right? It's like from, you know, Rodinus Morris, 12th century, from some mythical, you know, character, um, we get this coming forward and forward. So they were copied over and over again. So we have textual, we have um, biblical, we have graphical. Here's a, a later uh, print of the version. If you were to go back and look carefully, you could find this um, particular uh, uh, script here. I believe it's the one here. Um, or, no, maybe it's, I think it's actually the one next to it. And then you'll see that here it is. Um, and uh, in this, uh, le- le- there's two scripts here um, of Radnus Morris. Okay, so I've made my point that the graphical modes of knowledge uh, transmission are crucial to passing forward, in particular, the mythic, celestial, and angelic alphabets that don't really have an existence um, in any other form. The fantastic James Bonaventure Hepburn um, in this Virga Aurea of 1616 puts together one of the most comprehensive um, tables of uh, alphabetic scripts and examples um, uh, of the period, and this is the very tip top of it. There are 72 of these scripts on this particular um, uh, example, and, and he does not give all of his bibliographical sources, though Dr. Morton and Dr. Bernard, thank you, do. Um, they, however, being serious uh, figures of the 18th uh, century, um, uh, late 17th and 18th century, do not indulge in angel alphabets. And that's also very interesting to see that for Hepburn putting his compendium together, Chaldean alphabets, serif, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, alphabet of the seraphim, the super celestial, the celestial, the angelic, right? They're right up there with the Persian, right? Why not? Okay. So, you know, all of these things are, are there to be passed forward. Um, but if you uh, if you're to look at Dr. Martin and Dr. Bernard, they have banished the celestial alphabets. They come back in Fry. It's really fascinating. Um, the fascination of, of, of various uh, polymath figures with trying to sort out this history and to understand where did the letters come from, um, to understand their origin, their genealogy, their transformation. Um, it's uh, evident in the work of somebody like Athanasius Kircher. What's driving their investigation? The desire to find and locate the original language before Babel. Right? I mean, it's a serious quest and a serious question. You know, is there an original language, you know, and, and can it be recovered? Um, So we've seen that we have then, uh, you know, forms of textual transmission, graphical transmission, biblical transmission, and then we get to the period of the antiquarians, right? The the engagement with antiquities. And uh, you can't have a better antiquarian than Bernard de Montfaucon and his antiquity explained, get a fantastic compendium volume. 
Montfaucon has gone to every single collection that he knows of of antiquities. He's trying to gather together every single piece of evidence about inscriptions and metals and uh, materials that he can possibly lay his eyes on, copy, make plates of, and then print. Montfaucon in his introduction of antiquity explained makes clear that there are no instances of ancient original Hebrew writing. There are no Semitic examples. He cannot find them. They do not exist as far as Montfaucon. And he states this explicitly. Why is he so concerned about this? Because, again, the quest to discover the historical truth of biblical knowledge drives a great deal of 17th and 18th century scholarship. There must be a truth to the Bible, and it must have historical evidence. He can't find it, and he wants to find it. Antiquities, uh, the, the, the people who are engaged with the study of antiquities, here's Edmund Chisel, another great antiquarian, can only look at the evidence that is above ground because they are not doing excavations. There is no archaeology. Archaeology is a 19th century science. They only have what is left in collections, what's been passed on, what is actually physically present. The notion that there is a history to be recovered from excavation is an outcome of geology and the exploration of Charles Lyell and the strata of the earth. Now, Buffon does have have an understanding of the longer age of the earth, but um, here again, we start to move into the uh, side piece, uh, the, the, the sort of central part of my argument, but the side piece of, of this discussion, which is that each one of these modes of knowledge production and transmission carries with it a model of history. To a great extent, the Greeks don't, you know, the sense of what the Greeks' idea of history is very interesting, again, much writing on this topic, but Herodotus knew there was a past. He just didn't bother too much with how long ago it was or how extensive it was. It had no value to him. He didn't really care. He knew that things had happened in the past and that they were living in the present. All right, but for biblical scholars, that sense of the past becomes codified within a chronology. How do we understand the day-to-day biblical chronology? What is that chronology? How long have we been on this earth? Where are we now? What is the date of those events? The antiquarians are working well within that biblical chronology. There's no other chronology. The chronologies, in fact, um, this is Thomas Astle, I'm going to skip it. Uh, The chronologies that last into the 19th century are biblical chronologies, Olympiad chronologies, and historical um, chronicles, right? So that you have these dated events, historical events, but essentially what you have is a sense of like, hmm, the earth is only 5,000 years old, we have these particular histories, um, let's figure out you know, how to reconcile what we know with those histories. You get into the 19th century, and archaeology starts to be a present um, uh, a part of um, uh, scientific exploration and knowledge production. Charles Forster, sitting in his vicar, vicarage or you know, uh, parish house in England, never goes to Egypt and he never goes to Palestine, but he tries to pull together all of the information he can find from published sources about what he thinks is the one primeval language. Forster is the last of these kind of antiquarians, the, the person who is sort of getting leaks and seepages of archaeological knowledge, copies of transcriptions off of, um, you know, sort of stones in the Sinai. Um, but he is still trying to reconcile them 
to a harmony of primeval alphabets, again, to recover the one primeval language. That's not going to last much longer. The archaeological evidence of the 19th century begins to connect the um, information that's coming out of the uh, newly opened territories of Palestine um, and the Levant because the uh, Turkish Empire is breaking up. The British, the French, the Germans move into that area, begin to explore it for various reasons. Um, and start to see that there's a connection between the ancient writings and cultures of North Africa and Egypt and the cultures of uh, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and that the alphabet has some relationship to those uh, various cultures. Um, as they do this, they begin to uncover um, all kinds of materials that had been lost to view for thousands of years. And the first survey, the, 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 the surveys of Palestine that start to be systematically produced in the 19th century are also the, um, at the outcome of archaeological um, explorations. And so look at this, 1908, the Palestine Exploration Fund, where the Giza calendar um, is found. And with artifact after artifact after artifact begins to be unearthed and discovered. So an entire history of Semitic scripts, their development, their diffusion, their consolidation starts to have evidence to support it. Another touchstone uh, book, there are a number of crucial um, uh, texts in this historiography, um, equivalent in intellectual weight and uh, you know, rhetorical heft to the work of Fry. Um, and one of them would be this book by W. Flind w. M. Flinders Petrie. Petrie's the great Egyptologist. He spends all of his time in Egypt doing excavations. But at one point, somebody on, an, on an, you know, a kind of diplomatic mission says, you've got to take this particular thing to somebody here over in Palestine. We, you're the only person we can trust. You've got to go here, take this. Uh, Petrie goes, and along the way, he discovers, lo and behold, this. He goes, oh, you know, gee, what is this? Here it is, sitting in the Sinai Peninsula, right? Here's this incredible sandstone sphinx. What is that? You know, what can this possibly be? Um, Petri comes up with a theory of um, uh, alphabet development, which is unique, um, interestingly very structuralist, 1912, um, and you know, quite in keeping with the kind of linguistic framework of Ferdinand de Saussure, who was thinking structurally and systemically. And Petri says, the alphabet is, and no one ever agrees with Petri afterwards, but I think he's actually right. Um, and Petri says, the alphabet isn't, again, a set of little you know, letter blocks that circulate around the Mediterranean as a fixed set. Instead, there's a group of signs that are in circulation around the Mediterranean through trade routes and also to the east and to the south, down into Ethiopia, over into Arabia, and into Southeast Asia that are little by little coming into a kind of consolidated um, and stable system of glyphs and codes used in a standard way to represent certain kinds of sounds. And he starts to track the diffusion of these letter forms. It's an amazing book. 
Um, just to finish off with the kind of modes of knowledge production, and then I'll pull my argument uh, together towards a conclusion in terms of thinking about these problems of history um, and conceptions of history and how they these analog sources actually relate to digital projects in the you know, final minutes. Um, I want to finish with uh, the dimensions of alphabet history that develop and forms of knowledge production that develop after archaeology. Archaeology is amazing, crucial, and central to any of these um, uh, scholarly endeavors, but in and of itself, it's not sufficient. In addition, we need the incredible tradition of Western, West Semitic epigraphy, Frank Moore Cross and his many students and so forth coming forth into the present, Joseph Neva, Benjamin Sass. These are scholars of you know, absolute um, you know, integrity and, and uh, uh, knowledge and complexity. Again, tracking this um, you know, sort of source of the alphabet from proto-Canaanite into its various branches um, and developments forward into the present. And you see the, the date line coming here. Again, it would be a mistake to imagine the alphabet pulsing through this tree as if it is a single thing going through to those branches. Every place along the way, the alphabet is changing and um, being modified uh, for particular use. Um, the other thing that happens uh, in the present, um, and this is the, the work of Bruce Zuckerman at USC, is the use of material science and digital technology to transform uh, what's essentially chocolate chip cookie dough burnt on the bottom of your stove into something legible. Oh my gosh, it's the Dead Sea Scrolls. They, they speak, all right? So um, this kind of technology does not involve a simple um, imaging, uh, any particular single imaging technique. Instead, what it is, is a process by which various forms of imaging, MRI and infrared and uh, multispectral, um, are all shot at this particular fragment. The distinctive features that each technology picks out are put into a computational environment where they are algorithmically processed so that the distinctive features each one emphasizes can be aggregated in order to produce, I'm sorry, in order to produce a legible result. So that's high-end digital skills in material science put at the service of a humanistic project. The point of this long sort of series of, of kind of very compressed discussions is simply to make the point that each one of these forms of knowledge production and knowledge transmission carries with it a whole set of assumptions about what constitutes the object of inquiry and how that object is constituted by the conceptual frameworks of the knowledge uh, technology itself. That brings us back to Fry. That brings us back to Fry's own understanding of history and chronology and to the problems that it poses in contemporary scholarship, that is, now, and the representation of the models of history that um, are available to us in current graphical uh, and information visualization systems. And this is where the analog meets the digital. I go back to Pantographia, a wonderful Edmund Fry book, and I say to you, if we were to look, as we will in a moment, um, through every single entry in the Pantographia, we would find, as I'll show you in a second, every, almost every single one of those entries has some kind of reference to temporality and history. 
And each one of those entries, or many of those entries, also have references to geography. Where are we? When are we? The model of, of chronology and history that uh, Fry would have been working with comes right out of Eusebius, right? Third, fourth century chronicle. What's amazing about Eusebius is that Eusebius manages to reconcile the unreconcilable, which is various time scales and chronological models by using a manuscript that does not require that he subsume multiple models of history to a single grid. So you can actually put different time scales and metrics onto a single page. Eusebius is amazing. Poor Eusebius, when subject to the disciplinary regime, as we might say, of Henri Estienne and the um, uh, rigors of uh, typographic style, um, has all of its subtlety taken out of it, because now we've got a grid that is um, inflexible rather than flexible. My point is that, again, if we were to look through Fry, we would find that his many and multiple temporal references are not going to fit into a single timeline. All right, uh, This has been used by the Hebrews in the wilderness in the time of Moses, and that was exactly when? Well, in fact, Bishop James Usher will tell you exactly when, and Usher's chronologies, which are extremely detailed, were used and put into the King James Bible in 1701 and continue to be in the King James Bible well into the, well, I'm, I, they may still be, and I haven't looked this week, um, but the point is that these chronologies order the world um, from the moment of creation into the present. And the, the, the chronology wars are fascinating and interesting. Um, uh, Isaac Newton at one point decided that, in fact, you know, these chronologies of Usher weren't quite, you know, that these chronologies aren't quite, quite right. They need to be changed. Uh, Newton recalculates everything. He comes up with the decision that, in fact, the chron biblical chronologies are off by four days. And for this particular <laughs> sin and crime, he is attacked by a particular English cleric who writes, who has just retired and has time on his hands, and writes, you know, a 500-page volume in which he details day by day, hour by hour, everything that has happened since creation to demonstrate that Isaac Newton is wrong. Okay, so, I mean, these are serious, serious questions, right? I'm making light, but they're not light. But let me pull this to an end here and tell you what's at stake for us. The statements about history um, that are present in Fry um, are, are, fall into various categories, all right? And again, um, here's, you know, this is given to, to Abraham when he departed for, from Chaldea for the, land, for the land of Canaan. If you start to go through this, this is brought from heaven by the angel Raphael, by whom it was communicated. So exactly when was Raphael? Um, I, I'm a little vague on that particular point, but I know it was used by Adam before, after his expulsion from the terrestrial paradise. Okay, so there's the biblical chronologies, but there's also other kinds of history in here, brought from the Holy Land to Venice, when the Christian princes made war against the infidels. Okay, we could fix that within certain kinds of historical models. Fry does not have a single historical model. And I went through every single entry in Fry and pulled out all of the temporal references in order to begin to study them, to think about what kind of classification system for Fry's chronology would respect Fry on his own terms. And this is really the kind of punchline of my talk. 
which is to say that if we take seriously that we must respect the cultural otherness of the past, then we cannot reconcile it to some brutal model that we have of a, chronologi of a chronology that we for some reason think is more true than Fry's. Fry had a complete explanation um, for himself of what the model of history was that he was working with. Um, all of the, the classification systems into which we can put Fry's chronological terms include things like relative, vague, but temporally specific in terms of sequencing, descriptive, that is given an attribute, it can recur, right? Specific, original savages of Greece were tamed by the Pulaski, we can more or less locate when that was. Um, to move this into a digital frame, what we do is come up then with a markup scheme, a chronological markup scheme, where we can take the transcription of Fry and begin to put this um, chronology, chronological scheme in here. The date is type, it's history, right? but it might be vague, a, a temporal um, vague chronology. So you begin to mark these up so that you can begin to extract them and think about what it is that they tell us about the model of chronology and therefore the model of history that Fry is working with. When we pull this together, we realize it isn't going to fit onto a timeline like this. Um, there is no sort of single um, uh, movement forward, quite the contrary. We might have to come up with something a little bit more sophisticated, a kind of square of opposition in which earlier and later, more specific and less specific are the guiding terms. But in any case, what we're going to have to be sure that we do is to create multiple metrics and multiple calendrical and chronological systems in order to model what it was that Fry was working with. Uh, of, of course, he did not have this particular time scale um, in his vocabulary. Again, that's not going to come until the 19th century, Charles Lyell, 1830s, discovering through the examination of the strata of the earth that it has a geological history. So my point here is that as we work in a digital environment to begin to try to represent what it is that we do in chronological, what, uh, what we know about chronologies and models of history, that we must not, in my opinion, um, simply say, well, we'll use a standard timeline and we'll just show you know, w what it was that, yeah, we'll, we'll show Fr Fry's wrongness in relationship to our rightness, but instead, as I said, to um, appreciate from a, from a really serious point of view that the construction of the understanding of that historical past whether it's in Fry or in Josephus um, or in Kircher, um, is um, you know complete unto itself and needs to be represented in that way within a digital um, re uh, representation and a contemporary representation for our own understanding of knowledge production to move forward. So I finish then, oh, the, this is just the, the other example of geography. This comes out of the work of Leif Isaacson. He's a Ptolemy scholar. Um, the problem that he's trying to deal with is to show how Ptolemy understood the geography of the ancient world um, through the specific citations in Ptolemy's text. And the point here is that rather than take an existing map of the ancient world and plot Ptolemy's points onto it, you extract from Ptolemy the data points and let that model of the world emerge. There's all the difference in the world, right? It's night and day. One says, we already know, and we'll see what Ptolemy knew. The other says, let's model Ptolemy's own knowledge. And that's really what I'm trying to do um, with this work of Edmund Fry. 
Um, so in conclusion, uh, my last statement would simply be that I see Fry because of where he sits within this various history of knowledge technologies, historiographies, understandings of the alphabet and script as what I would call a refractive document. It's, a, it's not you know, simply a, a piece of evidence that whose forensic um, materials can be examined in and of themselves. It's a kind of lens through which we see backwards and forwards where all of these different historical models are going to fracture in terms of their irreconcilability as models of um, our understanding of the historical past. And that's it. I'll stop there.